Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. Thanks for joining me today. It's really going to be an exciting show for me, but first I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro, as always. Uh, please check him out. He is a native storyteller, and he and his wife have an amazing website and have some amazing CDs that teach you how the Native Americans preserve their history, their cosmology, not through the written word, but through the spoken word. And it's a magical form of, of keeping history alive and well. And uh, you should please check it out. I have with me today one of my favorite authors. I have Charlie Pellegrino with me today. And one of his books um, entitled Dust is what we're going to be focusing on initially today. And it is um, focused on an idyllic Long Island community. And the main character is Richard Sinclair, who is a paleobiologist and one of the first to suspect that the environment has begun to wage a bloody, terrifying war on humanity. What initially appears to be random, unrelated evidence are actually violent eruptions in a worldwide biological chain reaction. Along with a brave group of survivors, Sinclair must learn to understand the cat cat <laughs> catastrophic catastrophe. Sorry, while it roils around them, slowly crumbling a panicked world and threatening a apocalypse. The survival of humankind depends on finding an answer immediately or else they will face the final tragic destiny of their species. Charlie's been known to work simultaneously in... Now, I know I'm going to twist my, my tongue on some of these words, so please just bear with me. He has been known to work simultaneously in etymology, forensic archaeology, paleogenetics, and preliminary design of advanced rocket systems, astrobiology, and marine archaeology. He's the author of 18 books, including Return to Sodom and Gomorrah, Unearthing Atlantis, Dust, Ghost of the Titanic, Her Name, Titanic, The Untold Story of the Sinking and Finding of the Unsinkable Ship. He's also the scientist whose dinosaur cloning recipe inspired the Jurassic Park series. 
He has made dives to the Titanic and to the strange oasis of the deep ocean, hydrothermal events aboard the Mersibles, and together with Dr. James Stoff, he formulated the theory that environments similar to the deep ocean volcanic zones might support life in the subsurface oceans beneath the ice of certain moons of Jupiter and Saturn in what is often called the Europa Theory. Um, Now that I've twisted my tongue around so many of these different big words um, that you can read well but not speak as well, I have to say I've read um, three of Charlie's books, and I find that they are magical and inspirational in um, inspirational in many different ways, and they have a poetic essence to them that is almost addictive. You you get into them and you can't put them down, and even though you want to sort of pace yourself, you find yourself not able to. They move fast. They are intriguing. They are educational. They are inspirational, and in many ways, they open your eyes to a lot of things that have not yet happened but may very well, and especially with Hiroshima book, to what has happened and has to be remembered so we don't repeat that mistake again. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Ah, uh, hello. Hello. <laughs> I, right. I was just... I was just noticing as I was reading this, you, you picked an interesting name for your main character, Sinclair being, of course, you know, a Knights Templar name and, and stuff like that. Was that intentional or was that just, it felt uh, right? No, it was just a name that felt right. And that was before I was called to the whole Jesus family to the Talpiatu in uh, uh-huh. Israel uh, before I even heard of anything like the Da Vinci Code. Amazing. It might even have been an unconscious thing that uh, I loved dinosaurs from the time I was a kid and maybe the Sinclair dinosaur at the World's Fair. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you about your inspiration. I, I know I, I understand the inspiration for the Hiroshima book, but it feels to me as though there's something else at work within your writing that has a more a, a spiritual wisdom connected to it that is really really important. And what was your inspiration for Dust? Dust was published in 1998. What was your what was your inspiration for the book itself? Nightmares I woke up to as a, a kid, as a teenager. I had nightmares of looking up into the leaves of a maple tree, and there were no insect holes in the leaves. And it was a recurring nightmare that every tree, every plant looked perfect, and then I realized it was because all the insects were gone. And uh, so I wrote that initially in college when I was doing science fiction radio drama, uh, kind of thing that was popular for a while. I ended up, uh, because of that, briefly with the National National Lampoon Radio Hour. And uh, so I, I first did it as a radio show. And then the idea just stuck with me. I ended up studying entomology in college, which is the study of insects. And it just sort of stayed with me. Eventually, I started writing the novel. When my daughter 
Amber was born. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People say, oh, Jurassic Park, uh, you know, so-and-so, this professor says he came up with it first, and that was a whole case. He ended up having to admit before the New York State Supreme Court that he lied, that it was me. Uh, ah. It turned out he thought I had died because I was very sick in 1985, but I got better. It turned out it was my doctor who ended up dying. Uh, but I got better. But meanwhile, uh, this one guy out in California, he believed the story. And he was originally one of the severest critics of the idea. He was one of the people who chased me out of New Zealand for coming up with what's now known as the Jurassic Park recipe. So I called him up with my recorder going and I said, hi, you know, I was just reading what you were saying in the New York Times. Uh, what a fantastic idea. And he just, hamana, hamana, hamana. I thought you were dead. <laughs> oh. So there's yeah. a novel that a woman recently wrote uh, called The Plot, which pretty much surrounds that idea. Someone who thinks the author is dead and then writes the story himself and uh, gets an email one day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, somebody somebody a long time ago was had something on eBay that was it was I did a deck of cards and he he put it up on eBay and it said signed by the author and I never, you know, signed I I never signed any of the cards. So I contacted hmm. him and I said, "You do you know the 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 author?" And he, yeah, I know her well, and you know we went to school together, and yada yada yada. I said, and what card did she sign? And he said, oh, the miracle card. And I, I said, are you serious? Because he was asking like six hundred dollars for the deck, and um, sure. you know he he went on and on. I said, look, I got to tell you, I'm I'm the author, I'm I'm the painter, and I never <laughs> signed any of those. <laughs> so. So if you actually get $600 for this deck of cards, I deserve 75%. Or I'll sue you. <laughs> he took it down. <laughs> mm. I would have loved to yeah, see Yeah, I mean, it was kind would... of fun what happened. The guy, I'm not dead yet. I got better. <laughs> oh, I love going back to Monty Python lines. <laughs> oh, geez, yes. <laughs> Or I died, but I and I feel much better now. Um, yeah, yeah, that would so, have been a good so one. Yeah. For for those who have not, you know, read Dust, and and it is probably one of the most intriguing stories ever. Um, it it basically is the story of these small insects or viruses or microbes or whatever you want to call them, just, you know, whacking out and wiping out. And, and the food chain starts at the very, very bottom and starts to disintegrate. And it's the story of the people and how they try to survive and, and how, they, how they manage to survive, not only by finding their answer in amber, but preserving their story in amber. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, it and is, it turns it out is. that, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Did you, oh, go ahead. It turns out that I, I went in the opposite direction of Michael Crichton with the biomorphing recipe, and 
Uh, it's actually, you know, the Jurassic Park recipe with insects. It's uh, what comes to, and the genetic technology, it's what actually in my novel comes to, is brought to the rescue rather than something, oh, no, we shouldn't go there at all. And uh, there is now some serious interest from people like Elon Musk in, well, maybe we can biomorph ostriches and emus into some of the theropod dinosaurs once we can actually read the DNA of, for example, ostrich dinosaurs, which looks like they were very intelligent, too, would have been very interesting. But uh, I'm not so interested in seeing recreated dinosaurs as all of the medical technology that you pick up along the way to developing a dinosaur biomorphing technology. In fact, we could probably, uh, along the way, during the next 20 years, cure most diseases, possibly even stop or reverse the aging process, possibly even artificially boost human intelligence for everyone. Uh, These are interesting things that may actually be in our future if we can survive as a civilization. Well, you know... The more I the more I thought about it all, the more the further I got into the book. It was you know, I have to admit I, I'm a gardener, <clears throat> and I would go out and sit in my in my garden and cheer the bees and butterflies on, <laughs> mm, <clears throat> knowing yeah. that that you know they were doing their job and it was all right and for for a decade or so we're okay. And you know I often do wonder and and worry about what future generations have in store for them. Um, but but as far as if you go back and you know if you go back millions of years, was our atmosphere different so that so that those microbes and and whatever were able to um, survive better? I mean, has the atmosphere changed so radically that maybe we aren't supporting the? It the... probably has. The atmosphere was probably i'm guessing there was more oxygen in the atmosphere in the time of the dinosaurs we know there definitely was in the period we call the carboniferous when we had all these uh forests and uh, giant club mosses and very very large insects uh dragonflies with uh two foot three foot wingspans and a lot of other things that probably haven't even been preserved as fossils. So we know back then there was probably a lot more oxygen in the atmosphere. Uh, now, <clears throat> largely through human activity, we're beginning to release a lot of the methane that's uh, in the polar regions. Uh, we're beginning, we've uh, just about doubled the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere And I do believe there are technological means by which we can solve a lot of these challenges that we create for ourselves. We could, for example, within 20 years, have most of our power beamed, especially as transporting trucking material into space is getting very cheap. We could have uh, solar power microwave beamed to a couple of receiving centers in in the deserts, and we could be powering the entire planet from clean solar power from space. And uh, we've got methods now where we can tow things up into space, truck things up into space, uh, 
getting it down to the price of air freight around the world. And uh, through these magnetic uh, rail guns, uh, we should be able to do that uh, without too much trouble and to do it, to have the Earth solar powered within about 20 years, which would be a good thing because we're probably at least 40 years away from controlled uh, nuclear fusion, which is another semi-clean form of power production. Or we're not sure we'll ever get there, but I, basically I have a lot of optimism for the future as long as we don't let all sorts of crazy politics and everything else get in the way. We but, look like we're going to have a stable human population about 2045 at about 9 billion people. And we have the means to provide a good standard of living for 9 billion people in 2045. Well, I, I had the uh, pleasure of driving across the country about 10, 12 years ago. And, you know, they talk of overpopulation, and yet I we drove through hundreds of miles of, of land that was not developed and was not populated. I mean, our coastlines for sure are going to sink, but... But the middle of the country looked pretty reasonably empty, mm. so that so that you know if you can get you know cities developed and stuff like that. I mean, it, it just there's there's so much empty space. It, it are we overpopulated in cities and stuff like that? Yes, we are absolutely. Well, it's but, more a matter of things with overpopulation that, and as you have an improving global economy. Uh, decade by decade, it's not like it was 40 years ago where most of the car pollution, for example, came from North America and, and Europe, and then China became wealthy, and so you've got another billion people driving cars around. And it's like introducing a whole new carbon-expelling animal into the world, into the world ecology. Uh, our cars, for example. And uh, so it's uh, accelerating the amount of carbon dioxide we're putting into the atmosphere, which then increases the amount of methane escaping from uh, the permafrost and even now beginning to escape at an accelerated rate from methane ices in the oceans. And uh, yeah, yeah. so... I, I think we've, we've already crossed the tipping point for that. Now we're going to have to adapt to it and develop the technology to adapt to it. And there is such technology. We've just got to be smart enough to use it. And uh, one of the points of dust is nature can have all sorts of surprises for us. Imagine if you just deleted the ants from our, ecology, our global ecology. If the world only lost the ants, most people think, okay, we're rid of a few pests, but without the ants, world agriculture dies. And in yeah. just it, all of the world's insects disappear. The scary thing is that for some reason, for it's become recognizable more in the last five years, we are going through what is uh, sometimes called the insect apocalypse the disappearance of insects, which is a reason that the novel Dust is getting uh, a lot of attention these days. It's, well, what happens if 
something simple that we normally think of as a pest starts disappearing from the world when that's one of the things that keeps us alive. Well, that's interesting because, you know, we've had the bees, you know, dying out, and then we have these killer wasps coming up that that literally can kill. Um, I, I think they're coming up from South America someplace, but... I, you know, I have to admit, some, you know, at one point they were, they were, you had your scientists in the book talking, and it's true, we do our best to get rid of the bugs, and yet it's the bugs that keep the chain, the food chain going, and I mean, I have to admit, in in the last house I had, every spring, I, I had an invasion of these huge black ants, and it got to the point where I tried everything I could think of naturally and homeopathically, and I finally got to the point where it was, you know, kill the suckers. And and then it got to be, all right, spray the outside of the house. If they make it in the house, I'm killing them. You know, there's a lot of land out there. Let them live out there. But if they come in, they're dead. And um, so, so, you know, and then, then you look at, Rose rose bushes, you know, you want to spray so that they don't get black rot and stuff like that. But it's 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 poison to to bugs. And and when you think about what we do with our vegetables and and fruits, we're spraying them with poisons all the time to keep the bugs off of them, so the fruits will develop. But if if like um, like I said, I, I garden. I'm a flower gardener more than anything else. And when I started in with my gardens, I planted peonies, and I could never get my peonies to bloom until somebody took me aside and said, you see all these ants on them? And I said, yeah, I keep spraying them to get the ants away. Mm. He said, well, (laughs) yeah, if, if you let the ants stay, they will eat the sap and allow the flower to bloom. Um, So I had one season of no peonies, and then from then on, I welcomed the ants to eat the sap off of the of the bloom, so I had flowers. But it it is an amazing ladder, and you know, from from the teeniest tiniest little microbe all the way up to you and me. And if you take too many of the rungs out, you stop the ladder. Yeah. And As I, a kid, I, I was allergic of, to wasps and bees, and. Uh, so naturally, I, I was attracted to them, <laughs> so, but uh, found them absolutely fascinating the more and more I learned about them. Well, you you study so yeah. many different things. <laughs> and we, de- really and we quite... depend on them. We depend on some of their relatives absolutely, like the ants. Well, it, Although it, I'll never it, come it to really, really like yellow jackets. They're like the... Uh, New Jersey drivers of the wasp family. <laughs> <laughs> Only a New Yorker would understand that. I have a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 no the the the, um, the 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 way that you wove the story together was absolutely magical. So I have to go back to to your. Style of writing, because um, and and you know metaphysics is my ballywick, so it mm. feels to me like there is something. 
I don't want to say otherworldly, but I will. I I would go so far as to say there is the element here of channeling another level of wisdom and intellect and poetry into the way that you're writing. I mean, do you feel that energy when you're writing? Do you feel a shift and change, or does it just second come second? I'm just to in you? a very peaceful place when I'm writing, and I don't even know. You know, people say they like things about my style, and I was writing a series of books under a pen name with a co-author at one point, and he said, you know, they're going to figure you out from your style. You've got to change your style. And I said, I don't even know how to change my style. I don't even know how I write. You know, it's just there when I wake up in the morning and I do it. Ah. You are probably the envy of of a lot of different authors because of that. No, there is there is your your style of writing has a flow to it, has an energy to it, um, and and if anybody <clears throat> really wants to check it out, they should read the Hiroshima book and the Dust book, and then read the Telepot Tomb book, which is the story of the uh, the tomb of Jesus's family. Um, right, and that one was uh, the, that book got very controversial, and I don't know how because uh, what was out there in the news. I sometimes wondered if uh, people writing about the same tomb that I and my colleagues explored, and which we studied uh, the samples in the New York Crime Lab, and uh, I mean, people were going on about the skeleton of Jesus or bones of Jesus and this one ossuary, that's what they call the bone box, that this one uh, minority culture, which we would know nothing about if not for what's in the Second Testament, written about the process of primary burial and, uh, you know, the body laid out on a shelf in a tomb. And it was a very, a culture that existed for only about 80 years in uh, in Israel, especially in the Jerusalem hills. But uh, the Jesus ossuary, as I had said, when Jerry Fowell had called to yell at me at Fox News one night and I, in 2007, and I said, uh, that's the ossuary in which there were no bones. We scientists, you know, the, the fibers, the uh, trace fibers from a burial cloth, uh, they were completely pristine. They had never been in the presence of a decaying body during a process of primary burial before bones were collected and put in an ossuary. And in that particular ossuary, people had only placed two cloths of unusual composition. Uh, you know, we were missing a body. And uh, mm-hmm. that's what people of faith would have said people like me should have expected to find in that tomb. And if there were no other ossuary except for the one that uh, was marked with uh, uh, the words Jesus, son of Joseph, in Aramaic, and on the uh, and that uh, there were three crosses, two of them brought together to form a star on the lid of the ossuary. If there were only that and nothing else, it, still it would have been absolutely fascinating. And then you find Maria in a Latinized Aramaic. And you find Mariamine Mara, which is the Greek name, and in Greek, the Greek name for Magdalene. 
but mm-hmm. appearing to be identified by the term Mara, which is referring to a female master of the congregation. And uh, Mary Emine is, uh, you know, uh, the Greek for one of the forms of Greek for Magdalene. So, uh, and in looking at that ossuary, there's the DNA of only one person. Uh, there are ancient apocryphal texts that refer to her and her brother Philip as having been abolitionists and freed many slaves and what happened afterwards. And the indications that she would be in that family, too. Uh, The same thing that's kind of misquoted in that novel, The Da Vinci Code. uh, The Da Vinci Code, uh, the original text actually refers to uh, uh, that and the Thomas text suggests that Jesus never was given authority that's the words used, was never given authority, presumably by God, to beget or to marry. And uh, it mentions the, uh, there are many mentions of the encouragement to adoption and that the family and the disciples, they adopted children and became uh, the fathers of many children, that adoption of orphans was a centerpiece of uh, charity in their faith. So uh, he may or may not have been married. She may or may not have been married. It's not completely clear, but there are some indications that there were adopted children. Ah. Well, I think what and was one of whom would have been Didymos Judas Thomas, the beloved disciple. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what fascinated me so much about that particular book was that, you know, it was archaeologists that were documenting it all. It wasn't, yes. you know, yes. just anybody. It was it was real archaeologists doing all of this. And, and bringing crime and, lab techniques into the archaeological site, which yeah. was, you know, the, the field of forensic archaeology was only being born and was actually created by, they called her the woman of the bones, Sarah Bizell, and she started the whole process in Pompeii's sister city of Herculaneum. And uh, she had died before she ever really got to see the field become uh, legitimized in the scientific community, except for National Geographic and the Smithsonian. Uh, this pioneer uh, of the whole field was literally treated as garbage by most of the archaeological community. So uh, Harold or Sigurdsson and I were always making sure that Sarah Bazell is credited and remembered for the field she had begun. And so it's basically as, you know, basically we followers or students of Sarah Bazell who brought the crime lab methodology to the Talpiat too. Well, I I think... I mean that that book fascinated me, but but it's written differently. That that's more of a almost it's it's almost like a journal of this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And uh, dust is of course a fictional story, but there is there is an amazing flow to it. And then and then of course you've got the the Hiroshima book, which 
is I think one of the I it it you know it should, everybody should read that it should be required reading um because yeah, I think it, especially people making decisions of war and especially wars that might go nuclear yeah because no, that most people do not know what really happened on the ground under the bombs and it can only be viewed now through forensic archaeology, then compared with all the survivor accounts, which pretty much became our approach to the Titanic as well. And then on, you know, then the Tapia tomb and then Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For some reason, I had been interviewing survivors since I was in high school every time there was an opportunity. And wow. then it became comparing where were you when this happened and what happened near you here and there and and then just getting people at different places at different radii outward in both cities. I, do, so, you, do you have a, decade, a certain... decades went into figuring all that out. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a... Um... <clears throat> Do you find that, that that you are drawn to certain topics that, that then you feel compelled to write about? I think I, I think those topics. It's sort of like something James Cameron said about Avatar that it was a story developing in him since he was a child. I think these are topics that uh, since childhood and probably what made me more interested in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was. Uh, you know, starting with the duck and cover drills when I was a child and uh, then learning more about, well, through the drills, what an atomic bomb does. Quickly began to realize grown-ups must be out of their minds, that they would build these things and think of exploding them on people. And then in high school, I had a friend uh, whose father was in the FBI we're all told kind of like, yeah, he does, uh, you know, accounting and stuff. But he was expert on all sorts of things involving explosions. And uh, he was the first person to ever mention to me, you know, there were people who survived both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, so he, then he first introduced me to survivors of the bomb. And uh, so I I just went on learning more and more and more. But I did notice when there was a – that he just knew about all sorts of things about volcanic eruptions and the destruction of St. Pierre uh, in 1902 by the eruption on the island of Martinique. Uh, He knew everything about that eruption and uh, and the people. And so – yeah, I guess that was one chance encounter that sort of headed me, you know, shaped my direction somewhat. Well, I was, Even I was while fascinated. I was working in other fields and never knew it, and then I'd keep running into Hiroshima survivors and Nagasaki survivors. I, I was fascinated mm-hmm. that you had that, um, what, what would you call it, that, that drone that was on... The moon. It was on. It was on the moon, somebody's moon that was that was drilling down into the center of it. 
um, to, oh, to get to in, the ocean. Uh, the novel, right? The in uh, dust. ocean uh, in dust, right? Saturn's moon Enceladus and the geysers and snowstorms into space. That wasn't anything like any kind of precognition or anything. Jesse Stoff and I, who were kids together at the 4-H camp on Long Island, uh, he did the math. I figured out a few other things uh, kind of visually. And, uh, you know, and then he and I came up with the Europa Theory and uh, started publishing in the area in the 1970s. And in fact, we got a book contract and uh, first the articles and then the book contract. And Isaac Asimov, when he first met us and Jesse's brother, because I also wrote a book with Jesse Stott's brother, Josh, about the uh, design and how they came up with the Apollo lunar module. And even uh, where they figured out if we had a little more of this and a little bit of that, the lunar module could become a lifeboat if anything happened to the command module service module system, that it could tow the uh, capsule back to Earth, and uh, which is exactly what happened during Apollo 13. And uh, so Josh and I were writing that book. One, uh, you know, we were doing all of this stuff in our teens and tw- in our teens and early twenties. And Isaac Asimov said, "How old are you guys?" Oh, I'm going to buy all of your books <laughs> just so I can stick pins in them. <laughs> but, well, in, uh, in, um, and someone in, uh, in 2003 on one of the expeditions to the hydrothermal vents, uh, one of the NASA guys there was saying, oh, that's impossible. Uh, you and stuff, you couldn't have. Uh, I had a professor who said he thought of it first. And I told him, you know, when we published and when we did this and that, and uh, he said, but that's crazy. You would have had to be teenagers. And I said, yeah, we were. <laughs> and the funny thing is, all three of us, Jesse and Josh and I, we were all three of us dyslexic kids. And some experts had said when we were little that we would never be able to read books, much less that we'd all grow up to write them together. That's so cool. Um, in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Um, at some point in time during that movie, a message was sent back to Earth, and they were told to leave one of the moons alone of Saturn. Oh, uh, that was in 2010, the novel uh, Odyssey 2, and it was Europa. That they were told yes. to lay, all these worlds belong to you except Europa, attempt no landings there. Exactly. So I was fascinated yeah, with the Europa Yeah, acknowledged uh, Je- and Jesse, uh, Jesse and me in that uh, in the novel. Yeah. It just it fascinated me that you know the Europa theory suddenly came up, and I remembered that that message supposedly back from. Whoever, right, right, um, to leave Europa alone, and you know. So the and purpose. I thought, I thought the, uh, the uh, many people think, ah, oh, that weak sequel to 2010, and I just say uh, to 2001: A Space Odyssey, and I just say watch both movies together. They really do work well together. Oh yeah, absolutely, but 
I was trying to figure out. I mean, you have you had this little module digging down into the into the into the into it didn't into it didn't feel like it fit. Yeah, it didn't feel like it fit into the whole rest of the other of the rest of the move uh, of the book, and I was kind of wondering why was that there. Well, the point was that they find life, and it's like the big discovery of all time that there exists extraterrestrial life. But by that point ah, okay. on Earth, the ecological crisis, the plagues and everything are to such extent that people on Earth hardly notice at all, which was oh, – I, I kind of looked back to that while we were all in lockdown and COVID-19 and uh, you know, we're losing friends and family members and everything. And then on the news, suddenly there's a thing about the Tic Tacs flying around. And what was most amazing to me is it felt like that scene out of dust where the world just didn't notice. It's like yeah. the Pentagon is releasing information. Guess what? Uh, yeah, there's something flying around that's disobeying all of our physics, and it looks like it's not one of ours. And uh, with everything else that was going on the world in the world, there was like, eh, it's just one more thing. And people kind of yawned at it. Well, I think, too, it, it was interesting in how you, you pegged society as it would, as it would begin to crumble. Um, <clears throat> people just, just, you know, they wouldn't accept it because they couldn't believe it could possibly be happening. And, and people were in denial for so long that it got ahead of them. And and the the fact that there was there was you have the character that's a manipulative kind of you know leader oh, yeah, that, that yeah. emerges kind of, uh, kind of like a composite of a real rogue gallery I've seen over the years rolled into one oh, person. Yeah. <laughs> but but it happens, and and these people take advantage of of um, situations like this. And and they whip people into a frenzy, and and I, I I see it happening today. People get swept away in riots, and they begin rioting themselves, and they don't know what they're rioting for. Mm. And mm. and that seems to be happening even today as we speak. Not maybe right this moment, but but we're seeing it in 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 lots of places. So I think that in nineteen. 98. So that's that was what that was 25 some years ago, give or take. Right. Um the life was was not the way it is today. And you know, you you're seeing I I swear that my philosophy is that science fiction is just a way of getting human consciousness to accept the fact that this weird stuff is going to be happening in our future. And my best example is, is Star Trek when it came out and they had the doors opening and shutting for them. You know, that was really cool. And how wild is that? And now we all walk into malls and stuff like that and don't think twice about the doors opening and shutting. Um, mm. the, the, the tricorders, um, so much of the stuff that, that like was written Like medical equipment into, in hospitals. And, yeah. Absolutely. And what got uh, me was we were still doing duck and cover drills when Star Trek came out. 
And, oh, yeah. I mean, we were being brought up on the world is going to end in fire very soon. And uh, they had added a new wing to my junior high school. And they were all proud of taking us down into the shelter and showing this is the biggest fallout shelter in any school in the country. And they even had simulated things on a TV about Washington is just a bowl of glass or something like that. And, you know, Washington, D.C. is gone. It's like, and we're going to step out into what if we're down here in this shelter? And where do, you know, it's a big space, but where do we go to the bathroom and, is there enough food for 2,000 kids and teachers? And where will our parents be? You know, uh, well, and, all of you that know, was going on <clears throat> then. And then Star Trek came on to TV. And yeah. after hearing the Russians are going to drop atomic bombs and kill us all, and we were being told, you know, the Russians are evil. And, I mean, I got in trouble over writing a wrong for the English teacher, a wrong view of what the book Animal Farm meant and, you know, and, and got called a communist by the teacher. And oh my God. Uh, so all of this was going on. And then Star Trek comes on and there were these people on the bridge. In fact, it struck me more than the technology uh, of this science fiction bridge of a starship that, whoa, there's a Russian. And there's some guy from China or Japan uh, that his family came from. And and there's a black woman right there running the communications. And it just struck me as someone sees this hopeful future. And then in 2001, I was on a Russian research vessel with Russian deep diving submersibles. And there was that whole mix. And we were all family. And, uh, you know, and, and deep down in the ship is where mission control was. And it just looked like the bridge of the Enterprise. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, here we are on a mission out at sea uh, exploring the Titanic. And I'm thinking Gene Roddenberry got it right. And then, oh, of yeah. course, that was August of 2001. And right around the corner while we were out there at the Titanic, 9-11 happened. And uh, you know, it, it was just like all that hope for the future. For a moment, it was not down. And uh, it was, I can rem- yeah. I, I can remember um, when I was in the first, second, third grade, uh, we, we did the, you know, a, a, an alarm went off and we had to get under our desks and cover our heads. And then, even even in the 70s, when I was teaching school, um, we had the drills where we, we took them, the kids down into the basement and um, had them facing the wall or getting down and putting their heads on, on their knees and covering their heads. And, you know, because that element of, of a nuclear explosion was still eminent. And, um yeah. I, I, they don't do it anymore, but but the bombs are still out there, and it, and it is scary. And I think in dust, especially, 
you you made a very <clears throat> I, I was going to ask you I, I know th- I know that there are the missile bunkers around and the people with the keys around their necks I know they exist but oh, that's one of the things that, described from the instruction manuals from missile bunkers and uh, <laughs> described in detail from uh, so if I'm writing something like that, I go to the people who are retired from the Air Force and uh, what I'm allowed to write about, I got it all cleared first. And the only thing that was kept classified that I could have put in the novel was how they stored food. So in the novel, I That's just right, yeah. moved on the design for that. But all the instructions, uh, all of that, the whole operational procedure, it's all true. I, I think that's what that's what fascinated me was that um, in the book um, the the floor had many layers of food and that you literally would would eat your way through the floor you know the different levels um, that the, the, there had to be years worth of um, food there for them but yeah. but I, I'm wondering if do they make do they make well, allowances for the fact it wasn't. In reality, it wasn't all that much food that they had stored for them because uh, once the missiles were away, uh, they had served their purpose and they just left them, okay, you have some chance of survival here. And they also had gold coins that they could bring out with them. Oddly enough, it's just, you know, rolls of British sovereigns were the gold coins that they had. Oh, wow. It it just um, like I said, you know, you you you've gone into such detail in so many places that that it makes one wonder, you know, okay, if this does exist, and and I know that there there are mountains where there are control centers and where where politicians are meant to be taken in case of whatever, but that that's if there's warning, and um, mm. in this. In this case, there really wasn't warning. It just started, and then everybody shut everything off, and it was like, what's going to be left of the country? And mm. how do you get going again? And if, if people look into the fact that there have been at least five mass extinctions uh, that they've been able to identify, where we've been sent back to almost single cells, um, the thought that... that this, you know, we Lord knows how how technically technologically advanced the last ones were because they're gone, they're wiped out. So, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't think too much of how advanced yeah. we are because I mean, there, there may... are some groups of dinosaurs that I think were on the verge of becoming, especially with what we're learning about some of their nearest living relatives, uh, you know. Ravens and uh, New Zealand's kia birds and cockatoos that they're just so intelligent. Oh uh, yeah. And the dinosaurs I'm talking about, they had manipulative limbs, hands, and then the asteroid hit, and that was the end of that. Well, the the global climate was getting much much cooler. We were starting to get ice rafted sands, uh, and the uh, shallow seas were withdrawing from the continents. A lot of different things were going wrong. And uh, a lot of things had already gone extinct before. You know, it's 
kind of like someone looks up and sees a bright star in the sky that's the asteroid moving night by night closer to us. And it's, uh, gee, is that something else we should worry about? <laughs> and in a way, it's kind of like the world today. The only thing is the dinosaurs didn't have a civilization and a space program and uh, technology that was advancing at an accelerating rate that could either destroy us or save us. The scary thing is every civilization that has reached a kind of technological peak has either gone stagnant for centuries and centuries or it went, ex- it went extinct. So, so far up to this point in time, Every civilization has become a ghost story. Yeah. And hopefully we, can get, hopefully we can get past that without becoming someone's future story of the fall of Rome, fall of Greece, uh, you know, or the next Atlantis legend. Well, that's, that's one of the things that, that bothered me for a while. It still does, but not as, not as greatly. And, my thought was, okay, if mass extinction happens, you know, um, my home is going to, over a thousand years, if it's left alone, will just crumble to the ground. There will be nothing left here. And so what will be left? Actually, that's not always true. Uh, what's your toilet made of? The porcelain will last millions of years. Okay. Mosaics in the subways of New York will last forever. And, in fact, uh, after the Titanic is gone, the porcelain toilets will still be there. The porcelain tiles from the Titanic's Turkish baths, 60 million years from now, they're still there. And uh, every every civilization is going to discover the practicality of making ceramics and things like porcelain so... And presumably well, every civilization throughout the galaxy, most civilizations, maybe they don't survive. But we may be, when you look out to the stars, you may be looking out to a galaxy of fossilized toilets. Oh, God. That's <laughs> a horrifying thought. There's a cheerful um, thought. And subway yeah. tiles. <laughs> well, no, no, my thought was a million or so years from now, if 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 there was a huge blast and and humanity disappeared and all that was left was, you know, the trees and stuff like that. Um, The only thing I know of that would be a testimony to our culture would be Mount Rushmore, maybe. Hmm. Because it's carved in stone. If people don't decide to blow that up. I mean, there are people who are calling for that. Uh, oh, God. But but that's the only thing that, that, that I think would stand the test of that kind of time. And and so, it, it, you know, to me, it's like, what? It, how do we leave a message to the future? Um, you know, that this is what we've done and these are the mistakes that we've made. And, you know, try not to make the same ones because it doesn't well, end well. There was a scene in the novel on the beach where they were basically putting, uh, carving messages on glass and putting them in a mountain somewhere. 
And, of course, in dust they were leaving messages to the future in amber. Yeah. And I buried. loved where they, where, they, where they buried them. That was fabulous. Yeah. And the last message to go in was from a child. And actually that message from uh, the little girl is based on a letter uh, that Eva Hart wrote with her mother from the Titanic. Oh, wow. And it's actually yeah, the same message she wrote. Well, you certainly have pulled on a lot of heartstrings in all of this. It's just um, when you think of of what it would be like, I mean, we had power outages here. at what we, First, we had the pandemic, and then mm. I lost power, so I lost my tele, I lost all electricity, and I lost my telephone. And the isolation that you felt suddenly being out of touch mm. with everybody and everything was so profound. I cannot imagine what it would be like if they no longer existed, if we could no longer get mm. fuel for our cars, so that we were stuck to be on foot without any way of communicating without electricity for for things like cooking and and no computers, no radios, no no nothing. I mean, life would be I mean, it would take us back so fast so far. It would be profound yeah. and and you know, I, I mean, if I don't understand something, I google it with with that not being available with the fact that Libraries and books are going out of style now, so that everything is either electronic or it's not. Yeah. yeah. Um, we could easily be looking and at... And I still prefer real books uh, to <laughs> Kindle and things like that, so it's become a joke. Uh, Charlie and Mary have so many real books in the house, they can never move. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, the last time I moved, I moved about 2,000 books. And um, I did finally donate them to the library. I kept I kept my important ones, but um, be, because you know it's it's if suddenly something happened, I I could keep my you know that that what was it? Um, it was a um, Twilight Zone thing with James Meredith. Oh yeah, right. Meredith. All the time in the world, and his glasses broke. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and that came up at the beginning of the plague and bunkering in. And uh, I said uh, to someone, uh, well, Mary and I have multiple pairs of spare glasses. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll survive I mean, that. Just... <laughs> uh, no one knew in the beginning how long we were going to have to be bunkered in. That's true. And it's amazing that the vaccine came together as quickly as it did. And people do not appreciate how lucky we are. If it happened 10 years earlier, we didn't oh my goodness. have the ability. It would have been three years before we even had a vaccine. Well, they're talking about locking us down again. Yeah, over breakthrough infections, and it's just, right now, we just, all that can be said is we just don't know. We have to look at where Great Britain and Israel 
had these breakthrough infections ahead of us to see how bad this can be. And, uh, you know, probably in about two or three weeks, we'll have a better idea. But, you know, all anyone can really say right now is probably it's not that bad, but we really don't know. So, yeah, maybe taking some extra precautions is a good idea. Yeah, maybe. I'm just thankful maybe. that most probably if you get a breakthrough infection of the D strain, it's, uh, you know, even if you're over 65 and you have an autoimmune disease, you're probably not going to end up in the hospital sick. You're almost certainly not going to end up on a ventilator or, or you know, dying from it. And yeah. a year ago, you could not have said that. And That's true. It's, a year ago, the not only the U.S., but the world was starting to go crazy with riots. I know. Which it oddly was, is was... something that happened in dust uh, among all the other bad things in the environment that were kind of uh, just striking a bad chord all at once. We had a disease that got out there that uh, affected less than 1% of the population. And yet uh-huh. it was it, it led to the ultimate disasters. Well, and we're beginning to see right somehow again. I, you know I, I, there are always things like Stephen King's The Stand where ninety nine percent of the people die. And when I was writing Dust, I was thinking, you know, what if you had something that affected less than five percent of the population? The fear, the craziness, and everything could still bring down civilization. And in dust, there was also, yeah, I spoke with accountants and people worked on Wall Street, and if this happens and that happens, and that's why the great disaster that brings on much of what goes wrong is economic collapse and collapse of transportation, yeah. of gasoline and food and fear of, uh, you know, these this moat plague that uh, does not affect that many people. But the fear of it shuts down the whole country. Oh, fear is something else. It's uh, it's amazing. I when I saw what was happening to people, just neighbors and friends, um, it, it was it was really fascinating how everybody reacted a little bit differently. But there was that that edge to everything, kind of like, no, I don't want to be in a big crowd, and now I. I'm claustrophobic, so I I stay away from big crowds. I mean, I understand that if you're in a big auditorium with thousands of people, there is plenty of air, but I can't breathe. Yeah. I just know My I'm going to suffocate. My thing is that uh, working in the dust in Ground Zero New York, and the reason I went in was there were things that could be learned that applied to volcano physics and that, uh, you know, working with the team at University of Rhode Island, it could save lives in the future. Probably already has. The Italian edition of the documentary that was made uh, appeared to have driven home to some people that the only way to survive a volcanic surge cloud is take the stipend of 30,000 euros from the government and move out of the hot zone. And yeah. uh, the surge cloud zone, and a lot of people did. So it, 
probably has saved lives in the future. But that was, you know, that was our thinking. Uh, we've got to go in there. It may save lives in the future. And a uh, few of us, uh, yeah, I got ground zero lung. And so but, but, I became, but, before the COVID plague struck, I was already, you know, I'll go to a movie theater. Uh, if there's a great movie I wanted to see, I would wait a few weeks until not so many people were going. And I would go for the morning matinee on a weeknight, uh, a weekday when I had the whole theater basically to myself or me and Mary or me and one of the kids. And uh-huh. uh, just to lower the probability of catching a common cold, because when you have ground zero lung, uh, your immune system hyper responds to the common cold. And uh, it's like the cytokine storm. You can get pretty sick. And in no, fact, right one, of my friends, a, one of my I, friends I that a, worked in there with yeah. me, he, he got a common cold that went through his family. And in a single weekend, he was gone in 2014. Wow. I have the same and, problem. Yeah. And COVID, yeah. It, it used up a lot of ground zero survivors and workers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's um, there's so much going on in the world today that, that people are oblivious to Simple things they should do to help preserve their life, and and um, it is frightening that that um, these occurrences do happen. But Dust is is just an amazing book, and and I was fascinated with the detail that you got into. And not only that, every time I thought, okay, you know, I you know they'll be able to breathe easy for a minute or two. And yeah, yeah, it's going to get better, right? <laughs> yeah. No, and you didn't let it, and it was like, holy crap, you know. What Haven't more we all had days like that where it just gets worse and worse and worse? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, happily I'm retired. If a day looks like it's going to be that way, I go back to bed. Um, and I remember an editor who said about, you know, the airship, the blue piece blimp, and he said, no, no, you can't let that happen to that airship. The thing is too beautiful. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was incredible. My agent, when my agent came in to defend me on that, and, of course, it's, you know, it ties in with all the other things that are kind of spiderwebbed together in the book and what led to that. And, my, and the editor is saying, no, no, you have to get, let the airship get through and that they complete their mission and everything, and... You can't, this, uh, one editor was very upset. He said, the ship is too beautiful to damage. And uh, <laughs> my agent said, you know, the Titanic had two sister ships, according to Charlie. Can you name one of them? And the editor was like, uh, 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 yeah, uh, it's got to happen. <laughs> he came back and was like, yeah, it's got to happen. And actually, I started writing the novel, uh, the week my daughter was born. And, of course, oh, wow. the novel leads up to what became my worst nightmare. Uh, what if there was something that could save so many lives? I mean, pretty much save billions of lives in the, in the final outcome. And you had to choose between that and 
letting go of your child as she's looking into your eyes, knowing the choice you have to make, what would you do? With billions of lives on one shoulder and in your hand you're holding your child and you're going to have to let her drop to her death as she's looking into your eyes. What would you do? I won't spoil it. I won't answer. Well, okay, you know, I won't either. That, but I... you know, and the point of realization that he would be killing more people than Hitler and Stalin combined by that choice, which that's where the editor would not budge, that that line had to be removed from the book. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah. And James Cameron, so in the new edition, that thought will be in the book. Uh, so, but James Cameron had said that was one of the most important lines in the book, and the editor made it be removed. Not just the editor, the publisher uh, of, I mean, way upstairs, that that line had wow. to be removed. You couldn't put that kind of guilty thought on this guy. Which means, you know, the editor and the publisher liked the character. <laughs> yeah. And also well, in the original he, he, in the original draft of the novel, he, you know, yeah, he didn't make it. And wow. uh, but I do like that. You know, I like the way the novel ends now. I Plus, too. Uh, you know, there's the movie and uh, actually uh, Bruce Berman at Village Roadshow had said in the beginning, you know, this is just a couple of years ago that he would like to see it as a series. And uh, I, could, I yeah. like the idea. And he asked me if I had ideas on how to make it a newer series. And uh, uh, Burke and Olsen have written a, I mean, I love the screenplay. I love these two guys because uh, when I saw their first film, Villains, I just looked at it and had the same feeling as when I saw Memento, the first Terminator film. Yeah, we're going to when I you know the first time I saw a Quentin Tarantino film, it was just immediately oh we're going to hear a lot more from these guys. And I had the yeah. same feeling about Burke and Olsen. And when I heard they were doing the screenplay, I said, oh, please tell me they want to also direct it. Uh, because they wrote a screenplay and directed the film Villains. And uh, they have a dark sense of humor. And uh, uh-huh. they're very, very good with it. And I loved it. So uh, I, that's happening. I, um... And I haven't written I, a sequel, but I, I have worked on what would be a tie-in novel to it with Richard Sinclair. And you learn a lot more about his wife, the story of his wife, Dawn, uh, who dies in the first chapter of the book. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I just I have to say that, that um, I've been um, – I, I, I've gone to a number of movies that, you know, there were, there, there was, you know, obviously there was, you know, book one, book two, book three, book four. Yeah. And I've I've gone to all of those movies. And I think I, it was one of the, um, I think it was one of the Trilogy of the Ring books. And mm. I sat through what I thought was the last 
movie, you know, the last book, and it ended, and I realized they'd broken it in half. And I sat mm. there in the movie theater saying, I mean, I said, oh, this is so not fair. And, I mean, having they read the book, I knew what was going to happen. They did that with one of the Harry Potters, too, yeah. Yeah, and, Where and they broke it, just, it into it, two. It really bugged me. That and the fact that um, I will be very disappointed if they change too much of it because um, it was what was well, it? Actually, it was, this, um, movie, this movie is actually sort of a prequel, and it deals ah. more with the moats and the origin of the moats. Okay. So, uh, and I and I just really like what they did with it. And uh, so they, at the beginning, the you know, I was like, no, a movie should be an impressionistic painting that moves and sings based somewhat on the book. Because uh, except that there are very few cases, uh, you know, misery being one of them, where it's just like the book. And uh, oh. Kathy Bates, I mean, oh, my, she is exactly like who you picture in the book. But very few movies that very closely closely followed the book were really that good. Well, I, I read, um, I forget who wrote it now. So uh, I didn't want anyone to follow the book too closely because that, then also it's like, you know, when you read a book and you go to the movie or you see the movie and you go to the book, you want it to be different. You, you, you want it to be different. Well, I don't know. I, I read um, like misery, you know, and uh, then a few movies that somehow the movie is actually better than the book. Take Shawshank Redemption, and that's not saying that it was a good, it was a great novella. Somehow, uh-huh. you had such talent involved in the movie that it came out actually better than the Stephen King story. And, and he is one Brown of my favorite writers of all time. <laughs> oh, mine too. Uh, Dan Brown, though, wrote a book called Inferno, and um, I, I, I totally loved the book. And so I mm. went and saw the movie, and they changed the ending. And I'm sitting mm. there saying, oh, no, they changed the whole purpose, the whole meaning, the whole whatever of the mm. entire book by changing the ending. And, and um and, and, you know, spoiler alert to anybody who's going to read the book, you know, turn me off now. Um, in the end of the, it, it's about a virus that, that somebody has developed because they, they're going to release it because the world is overpopulated and they have to decrease the population and this virus is going to do that. And the whole, and, and then he kills himself after he puts the virus someplace and it's a time release. It's going to be released at a certain time frame. Oh yeah, and yeah. so the, the the whole book is going through trying to get to the virus before it's released. And in the in the movie, they get there and they stop the release of the virus that is released to depopulate the planet. Mm. In the book, they get there and it's been released, and what it does is sterilize most of the people. Mm. And in my opinion. That's what this virus has done. Which I think the, uh, COVID. COVID. It, either COVID 
or the vaccine. I don't, I don't think One. we. I don't think we. No, I don't think there is any evidence of that yet. No. No, that's just that's just me saying that's what I think it was mm. for. And you know, we'll see what the birth rate does. But I would bet you that either either because the virus. Because I don't think anyone would really see a need for it because of the current projections of why you know the world population as countries become more uh wealthy and you know you have husbands and wives having to work now uh what they were trying to instill as law in china the one child only rule uh people are having smaller families or putting just... off uh having kids all together uh you know, things are changing but the population is leveling off and sooner than we thought it would. And it's been happening over the last 30 years. I swear to you. And a lot of people are alarmed now. Oh, how is the younger population going to take care of the older population? Well, ask Governor Kuma what he did here in New York. But uh, people are all worried about the economic impact. Well, we'll adapt to that. We'll find ways and everything. The important thing is, our population is not going to soar up to about 12 billion people and where suddenly the Earth's carrying capacity drops down to 9 billion people. And then at the moment, the 3 billion people have to starve to death or die. Uh, that's when wars go completely out of control and on a planet that's still nuclear weapons armed to the teeth. Yeah, well, but it you looks know what? like that scenario, you know, the Soylent Green scenario where, uh, oh. timely, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, watch uh, a good double feature would be uh, Silent Running and Soylent Green, followed oh, by yeah. Cloud Atlas. Uh, but the Soylent, you know, the world would have had nuclear war long before it reached the stage of uh, Soylent Green. And, uh, you know, we're not going, it looks like we're not going to go into that dystopian, all the people starving world and into, you know, the thermonuclear inverse to the golden rule. And it looks like we may dodge that bullet. But we've got to uh, be very wise and we've got to pay attention. Are you familiar with the Georgia Stones? Uh those are the uh, uh, just. Uh, I think I know what they are. They're the, the Georgia Guidestones people. that were. Yeah, uh, five hundred million is is what they want the population to be at. Um, it, it had ten things: five hundred million um, population of the world. Um, Improving fitness, um, unite humanity with a living new language. Um, you know, it's 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 a new way of life, and they don't know who erected the stones, but they're there. And um, oh, it's that thing. It's sort of like a mini Stonehenge. Yes, yes. And and yes, I forget why it's carved out, and someone just put it up there. Uh, some some rich person put it up. Um, they're yeah. beautifully carved, um, but what the main thing is that, that maintain humanity at five hundred million. 
and you know we're mm-hmm. way over that. So um, that might actually it, be a little small for innovation. You know, and it's well, yeah. It used to be you had to wait. Uh, you, know, you really had to wait a couple of centuries before a Da Vinci or an Einstein came along. And yet now we have about a dozen of them walking around at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a uh, lot of there. There, there are a lot of brilliant people working with some of them. So, <laughs> I, I and they're usually polymaths. So you get in a room together and you cover everything from dinosaurs to interstellar flight and God, the universe, and everything in between. Absolutely. No, I, they're out there. The only thing is that, that, you know, humanity is not paying attention, I don't think. Um, as, as a whole, everyone is, you know, so... Yeah, but that's you know, humans so, being humans, I think. If we're at a population of 500 million or 9 billion, we're still probably going to have the same proportion of people who are behaving like crabs in a bucket. They see one moving up ahead, and they want to pull it back in. Yeah. Well, you so know, you, it, you, and have, you always have the same proportion of people who are acting like yellow jacket wasp. Well, and, you know, archaeologists haven't changed. <laughs> archaeologists have not changed any over the centuries. They still, they still are very reluctant to... Um, be open to a change. Um, yeah, many archaeologists are like that, and you find the same thing in anthropology. And I've always wondered why there are certain things that go along with certain fields of study. For instance, you'll never anthropology has a lot of people who plagiarize each other. It's the only science I know where you'll find some guy serving time in prison, writing his papers from prison where he's serving time for having poisoned the judge after he's under investigation for forcing students to sell quaaludes and maybe murdering his wife before he plagiarized her papers. I mean, it's just anthropologists can make you very unhappy. Just ask Jane Goodall (laughs) about all the abuse she had to deal with during her life. Uh, wonderful person horribly abused early in her career by her colleagues yet particle physicist and botanist I have never ever met a particle physicist or a botanist that I did not like they're just fun wonderful people and ocean explorers as a whole are also pretty fine people to be around Except for some reason, when some of them approach the Titanic, they get a bit tense and angry. And uh, I don't know, there are a lot of angry people involved in the Titanic for some reason. But certain things go with certain fields, and I have no explanation as to why. Well, you know, I I would think with something like the Titanic... um, I, I mean, figuring out exactly why and how it, it, it you know, it, it's pretty clear what happened. But, but I think what I have found fascinating is when you look at the pictures of 
the um, debris field and mm. and how and like you said, the porcelain from the from the um, Titanic is also an area of fascination for me. I haven't read your books yet, but it's always been an, an area of fasc- fascination. And it's 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 it kind of I I find it interesting that the battleships from um, Hawaii that were sunk there are are considered tombs, and yet. Hmm. The Titanic does not seem to be considered a tomb. Oh, it is. It definitely is. It's, well, I know uh, it is. Mostly treated that way, yeah. And George Tullock, who was uh, one of the people who recovered a lot of the artifacts, uh, he dealt with everything very, very gently. And in fact, uh, <clears throat> when there was an area in 1996 near the stern where we're finding. You know, animal remains from the kitchen that were intact and knew that from the galley and that we knew that uh, they were probably under this ejected blanket is where you might find human bones. And uh, he actually uh, put some artifacts back where they had been found, where we were finding the animal remains. And they declared, you know, don't even land there. It was almost like what you mentioned before about Europa attempt no landings uh-huh. there, and that area was mopped off that you just don't even land there. Uh, now, everything I've seen, uh, the Titanic uh, has been dealt with with respect. Uh, while we're on oh. the subject, during the expedition this past summer, some of the photos that are coming in of the wreck and the debris field are beginning to look pretty frightening uh, that there's been changes down there, at least in that region around the Titanic. A lot of the wildlife uh, appear, uh, we need more data in the early photos and videos that have come through. It looks like a lot of the wildlife is withering or disappearing. And uh, the tunicate on the bow section, these Organisms called gorgonarians, they're shrinking, and there are many fewer of them. It's no longer, as it was even a couple of years ago, a good place for filter-feeding lice. So we don't what know what's the cause happening. of that. Are the current, it could be the currents changing. It, I expected that there would be less down there. Uh, that there would be some decrease, and I wanted to see, okay, can we get a close-up visual of these Gorgonarian colonies? They're little jellyfish-like animals that live on stalks, and they look very bushy. And there's one of them that's been studied for a couple of decades now. It's on the very point of the rail on the bow section, and it's hardly there at all this year. And I expected that with fishing fleets mostly staying at home, first they were running out of fish from overfishing, and then during COVID that there would be fewer fleets, that the fish stocks in the upper waters would be increasing, eating more of the animal plankton, which is a good thing because that would be doing less grazing on the microscopic plant plankton, which is really where we get our oxygen from and really where a lot of the carbon dioxide gets taken from. It's the top 60 feet of the ocean surface. 
and not the Amazon rainforest, uh, although you know the Amazon rainforest is a big chunk, but most of it is the ocean surface. And so I expected that, but not what we're seeing in these uh, early photographs that are coming through now. And it's, it's looking like it's going from being a deep ocean garden into a desert. And it's beginning to look like that. And I hope it's not something more than just uh, the zooplankton crisis has kind of been resolving itself in the upper waters uh, to something like the deep ocean currents changing. Well, and, I, I remember. Uh, and if, yeah, whether or not that's caused by us a change in the deep ocean currents, uh, that's what dictates whether you, well, uh, pretty much the weather all over the world. But but I, 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 I think I remember seeing a documentary on the Titanic within the last year or so that, that was saying that, that the rust was increasing to the yes. point where it was, it was starting to implode. Uh, it is, and that's guaranteed to happen. Yes, we were noticing, and if you take one of those icicle-like structures that Bob Ballard named rusticles, and they, they grow annual growth rings before they develop the channels inside of them. They're very complex, mm-hmm. marvelous uh, colonial organism. And uh, with you know, just the rusticles themselves are a deep ocean pharmacy of future medicines. But if you break them off and you look at the rings, and we were able to determine in 2001 that they're monitoring the health of the oceans above the Titanic. And the Titanic is the single most frequently visited column of deep ocean water, two and a half miles deep. And uh, the rusticles, if we, they weren't able to get a a good sample this year, uh, but if they can get a good rustical sample and we can look at the rings, we'll see if the growth has slowed down during the past two years. That'll help to tell us more. And actually, we can start chemically sampling each layer of ring and also see what changes are taking place two miles above the Titanic. So uh, they're, they're a very, very important organism. They're taking the pulse of the ocean's health. And whether or not we're having something to do with it, we may learn that from the rusticles, too. But I expect that during the last two years, the growth rings are probably very narrow and that the growth rate of the rusticles. In fact, in some of the pictures this year, we can see along the rail, along the bow, uh, at least some of the rusticles have fallen off. So maybe rustical growth is slowing down. We just don't know for sure yet. What do rusticles live on? Tell me, Russ, uh, right? many, uh, many, they're very opportunistic. They live off of the nutrients that are coming down from the upper waters. They are living off of the metal that the Titanic is uh, made of. They're able to metabolize that, the sulfur within the metal, uh, all sorts of things. And in 2003, we traced the origins of the rusticles to these deep ocean volcanic vents. Ah, okay. And uh, interestingly, were they not made of bacterial and fungal cells? 
we would say that because they're complex enough that we would say that just like sponges, they belong to the field of zoology, but sponges are made of nucleated cells. Uh, uh-huh. They have an interconnected circulatory system. Uh, in fact, the 460-foot-long section of the Titanic's bow it has been converted into one of the world's largest living organisms. They even have a chemically-based immune system from which they fight off certain things like these deep ocean nucleated cells, these amoebas. They produce uh, toxins that keep them at bay. And it looks like one of these, uh, there's a lot of antibiotics that we're seeing, uh, that we're discovering. And... uh, the potential for at least one or two of these antibiotics together, that because you're fighting off amoeboids, uh, if there continues to be a need for new chemotherapeutic drugs, it looks like we may have an anti-cancer drug that is not uh, any more invasive to healthy cells than an antibiotic. So that's one of the hopes of things we might get out of the Titanic's rusticles. And sometimes, like I said, I wish I could go back in time and uh, tell Thomas Andrews that, you know, the designer, one of the ship's designers, and the last thing he ever saw was his creation breaking up around him, killing 1,500 people. And if only he could be told that what's happening around him might eventually, because of the rusticles, save far, far many more people than the Titanic took that night. Well, the rusticles are beautiful. I mean, they are... Yeah, yeah. They're they're, they're just beautiful. They are an absolutely amazing organism. They're about... You and about three other people in the whole world find the rusticles beautiful. (laughs) There are those who would want to drop poison down there and kill them so that they would stop metabolizing the titanic steel. But as uh, Roy Cullimore was the first microbiologist to go to the Titanic full time, uh, he said, you realize that uh, iron ore came out of the ground and we turned it into the metal of the Titanic and the rusticles are giving it all back to the earth as iron ore again. The rusticles, when they fall off of the side of the Titanic, they, you know, they break an arm and that arm falls off the side of the Titanic and it goes into the ocean sediment. It's going back as iron ore. Uh-huh. And well, said, I think it's sort of thing... like the cycle that the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius saw, that everything, <laughs> even the purple ink in his robes, would go back and cycle back into the earth again and again. Well, I think one of the things that most people don't understand you know, when you get that far down in the ocean, it's absolutely pitch black. Yeah, and, and the only light and, is the light you bring with you or the light of the biolooms, as we sometimes call them, the bioluminescent light down there and in between all the way up to the surface. Uh, and, in fact, if you see the movie uh, Avatar, the deep ocean was a lot of the inspiration for what you see on the planet Pandora at night. Oh, okay. That makes sense. 
And we see organisms down there two and a half miles down. I mean, we still don't know what a flashing milk dud was. It was about the size of it and shape of a milk dud. And if it went by your viewport and it flashed into your eye, you would be kind of light blast blinded in that eye for a few seconds. Wow. Now, I think that's that's when when people think about the Titanic on the bottom, you know, we we see illuminated pictures, but we don't we don't realize that that there's illumination there, and and you know, once you guys go and away some of with it's the floodlight, right. in two thousand one, yeah. some organism switched on twice. About at first, I thought it was the other submersible coming at us with its with its lamps on. But the wow. other submersible had gone back to the surface a half hour before, so, okay, I just looked at it and filmed it in high def and said, go away, please, because it was big. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I have a question. Have it was they about ever half retrieved... the size of our submersible. <laughs> oh, wow. Have there ever have, have you ever come across any large fish down that low, or is it just... Well, that that thing with the lights was about 15, 20 feet long. And occasionally, if you're moving along the bottom, something gets annoyed by your lights and you see the big puffs of sediment that its tail whips up as it leaves. Are there any? And Ralph White at the bow section, he saw a large organism. He didn't know what it was, but it was hanging out. near the aft end of the bow section of the Titanic, near a couple of the boilers. Hmm. Would be interesting just to see. It it fascinates me that, that it's down that far. It's so dark. Are there any volcanic vents down there? I mean, are there are there any vents that, not that could be Titanic changing? Site. Not at the Titanic site. No, not near it. None that we know of anyway. And none that we see any traces of in the sediment samples. And the bottom is but basically just hundreds sand. of miles away. There are vents, and that's where the rusticles. Uh, so you probably have spores of all sorts of microorganisms that can just drift across the ocean bottom for hundreds of years until they start collecting along a friendly shore. Usually it would be a hydrothermal vent because there are about more than 30,000 miles of continental spreading centers spread along the ocean bottoms. And so... Uh, if it could drift for a couple of hundred years, come across a friendly shore, germinate, and that's kind of what happens. You have a constant flow of these organisms. Titanic probably wasn't down there more than 10 years before rusticles began to grow. Wow. And, and there's so much there that could be theoretically brought up yet. Are they are they going to be taking pulling any more of the artifacts from the bottom, or are they going to just there let no everything fit? There are no plans for bringing up artifacts now, but there are some artifacts that I think should be brought up, and I was convinced of that when in the 1990s, uh, yeah, just before, I think it, 
uh, was bef- just before the 19, 1995, they brought up a steamer trunk that had letters and diaries in it that could still be read. And uh-huh. that was the story of Howard Irwin and Pearl Shuttle. And it was so like, in fact, you'll get the full story if you read Farewell Titanic. Uh, because when I wrote Ghost of the Titanic, all of the sulfur had not yet been taken out of the diary and everything. So we didn't know the full story and the families of Howard Irwin and uh, and Pearl Shuttle had not been found yet. Uh, but there was a story there that is every bit as improbable as the story of Jack and Rose in Titanic. In fact, when I first met Jim... I asked him, how did you know about Howard and Pearl? Because we had only just uh, started really reading it. And mm-hmm. uh, he said, I didn't. And then I told him about it. I said, it's, uh, they, these two guys they, who traveled together, they even won their ticket on the Titanic. Wow. And actually, the real story is even more tragic than uh, in the movie Titanic. So so when people say to me, oh, that was all so improbable, that could never happen, I said, well, as a matter of fact, it did. It's just that Jim Cameron didn't know about it yet. (laughs) That's why he says things, well, maybe there are echoes through time. And in fact, his documentary, Ghost of the Abyss, starts with that. Wow. Well, I, I think that there is. I, I don't think the Titanic has given up all its secrets yet. Um, oh no! Uh, there, because to me, the letters and the, uh, of Howard Irwin and Pearl, uh, the diary of Howard Irwin, the letters of Pearl and her mother, these people that we didn't know about. Howard Irwin was not even on the Passenger Manifest, and so you know these people that sometimes we didn't even know about after more than a hundred years, archaeology is helping them to tell their stories, to speak clear. And one of the robots that got inside the Titanic found all these bags from the mail room still there intact with a sheath of protective bacteria over the bags. So letters oh that were written during the voyage might still be readable. And, you know, people can talk about a uh, shipment of diamonds that was on the way and things like that. Uh, I generally don't get excited until you find wood and letters and organic material intact. And the real treasure of the Titanic to me is whatever writing might have survived and might still be there. Well, yeah, and, and we've got the letters from one brother to another. We now we know that this guy was traveling under a, uh, an assumed name. A lot of people uh, were doing that at the time, and uh, he was worried about the price of ostrich feathers or something in his letters to his brother. But along the way, we found out some puzzling things that were in the diary of a survivor. Who were these people who were traveling? Well, now we got the story of these two people, these two lovers who were married, but each to someone else. Uh Uh-huh. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I there's there's just I, I think And um, you wonder how many more stories are like that still in suitcases, steamer trunks than in the mailroom that we don't know about. Have, and that also give us they, details about what it was to sail around the world in those days, uh, you know, some things that we just didn't know. Uh, Howard Irwin ended up, we now know from the family, ended up coming across as a stowaway on the Titanic sister ship Olympic years later. In the same portion of the ship where we have accounts that uh, from some of the uh, crew that worked below deck that they allowed stowaways to live in the cargo area in the bow section of the Titanic uh, because in return they let them keep their bunks clean and set up and everything and helped with a few things below deck when these guys came back from shoveling coal all day. And uh, all he knew, uh, this one uh, crewman who survived by jumping off the stern of the Titanic as it went down, and he wrote about, uh, his regret of never having learned their names and knowing that they were right where the iceberg punched through, and uh, that those men were among the very first, to di- uh, the very first people to die on the Titanic. Wow! It, 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 uh, you make you you make tragedy a fascinating story. You you weave so much humanity into it that it's impossible to look at it coldly ever again. And and I think you know there is definitely a talent and a skill there for sure because um you you even, even with the telepot tomb it's the same thing you you humanize it and you put the person right into the story as opposed to telling a story. And maybe that's what it is. You're you're not you're not Telling a story, you're allowing the reader to live the story. That's why it's so hard to put your books down. And I don't even quite know how I do it. Uh, and working with Simca was great because you know, when we were doing the Talpiot Tomb book, uh, originally I was going to, I, I had written the whole thing up kind of like Darwin's Origin of Species. And he said, no, the reader has to be in there doing it. But I thought this was so important that it had to be just a straight scientific uh, monograph. And uh, Uh Jim Cameron said, on the science, you nailed it. You killed it. And then Simka said, yeah, but not so much on the humanity. And I learned a lot from the way Simka took the book and took it apart and dissected it. And for one thing, made it from a 500-page book into <laughs> what it is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I really learned, a, yeah, I absorbed a lot watching him and I get, and uh, taking instruction from him on how to do it, which then affected how I wrote my next book, book which was the one about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I don't think I was ever really, really ready to really write that book the way it had to be written. Somehow I just feel, I don't even know quite how, but it required writing with Simka to find the necessary voice to write uh, Tail and Back, The Last Train from Hiroshima. Well, it was, is 
the most touching book I've ever read. And I've read a lot of good books, but um, that one takes you in and puts you there. And and I think that's, I just kind, you know, there's... Yeah. I, I just kind of hope the people, too many of them, who walk around today saying, oh, nuke this one, nuke that one. They just don't know what the word nuke means. Oh, God. And, and, uh, and you know, I, think, I yeah. think what you've got is when you're writing a book, you can either be a technician or an artist. You know, that you can tell when you listen to, for instance, a, 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 a piano player... You know the ones that are great technicians, but then you listen to someone play who is an artist, and you flow with When they're in another they, world playing the piano, yeah. They, yeah. They, they catch you into the moment, and you experience it with them. I think that's what you do with writing. You're not a technician. You're an artist when it comes to using the words and, and creating a feeling and a mood, and, a, and you know, it, it's it's... And it's not something, actually, I don't think that you learn. I think you either have it or you don't. And I and, have no uh, idea where it comes from. Uh, when I was seven years old, I <clears throat> I, was in a, I was injured really bad in a really horrible event. And I had to learn how to read and write and speak all over again. Wow. And uh, had a serious speech impediment and so on. And... Somehow, I don't know how, but I think somehow it gave me more of a love of words having to climb those extra hurdles. And uh-huh. words to me just somehow became, a sentence had to read and feel kind of like music. Yeah. I remember frustrating the hell out of my fourth grade teacher that I would at that time take so long to write a sentence. And I couldn't spell and uh, had to learn how to spell all over again. Well, thank God for spell check. Uh, yeah, but maybe that's what gave me, you know, something about that. I have one family member who says, yeah, the injury is what gave you. It. You might be the uh, video camera that got dropped. And one out of every 500 million cameras that you drop, it can see another part of the spectrum or something, that it gets better. Uh And you're like the 500 millionth one that got dropped on its head and worked a little better. (laughs) Well, That's what my Uncle Gandhi says. (laughs) Well, you know, I I think there is that, that element of, you know, when you have that gift, um, it's it it comes naturally, so you don't think about it. But I, I would imagine there are people all over the world that try to do it and fall short. I, I've met a couple of authors that can do it. Um, Dina Miriam is one of them. She her books on um, her past life experiences. You you are so taken into the past life, you don't want her to die because you're enjoying the life so much. And 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 yet you go to the next life and, you know, same characters, same spirits, different characters, yet you still continue that flow and that, that, that journey with her. It's the same way with what you write. Um, you're on a journey and, I mean, especially with Dust, I just, I felt everything. You know, I, you know, a number of times I had to get up and take a shower because I felt so grubby. Um, 
And I was, uh, you know, what we've been through. I mean, you know, I was there. You know, you take the reader in, that the, the, they're reading the whole thing. And, you know, it, it's sort of like you never stop to think about our water supply. And if our water supply is corrupted, then what do we drink? And, you know, I'm a Diet Coke freak. And I thought, well, you know, if I had enough cases of this, I could probably last a lot longer if I couldn't drink the tap water. I mean, when when you when you realize that the tap water was infected, that that there, you know, nothing was safe. And and if you went to a stream, you know, because usually you think of streams and clean water, and they were corrupted because there were the dead bodies of animals and stuff that were rotting in the water. So mm. there were microbiota, you know, there were microorganisms organisms there. I mean, when you when you realize that things that you think would be safe turn into weapons against you, it's like, holy crap. Yeah, I was in one um, region of China in 1987 where eh, there was a bit of a problem with radiation. And it was in the uh-huh. fish, it was in the water, it was in the crops that were growing there. So for almost a week, I, a Coca-Cola bottling company had recently come into China. And for almost a week, I lived off of Coca-Cola. <laughs> Just didn't want to eat anything grown in the region. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, but when you think, you know, that was short The water, term, the when food, everything think, was bad in that area. I think that might have actually been part of the inspiration for that part of the novel. <laughs> and what you said, you well, you know, if you have a lot of uh, Diet Coke to live off of for a little while. Yeah, I mean, and and it it's just when you when you think of, you know, people looting. I mean, I, in many cases. When when I've watched you know um, looters on TV, and and it, I'm I sit there and I think, okay, they're going in and they're taking just armloads of clothing. How do they know it'll all fit? You know, it's just they're mm. taking stuff that that is of no use to them, and yet well, because they can... get sold some. If it doesn't fit, it gets sold on eBay or sold to a friend or family member or something. Who knows? Or 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 taking TVs and there's no electricity anymore. You know uh, mm. they'll do that. Um, so that so that there's an irrational attitude that, that that takes over these people who are rioting and they they don't think about. And it's nothing new. Taking. I mean, there are actually you know historical records of some of the riots in ancient Rome. And it was just the same irrationality you see today, except the technology is different and the clothing Uh is different. But humans aren't that different. No. And in the good and the bad. I mean, we now know when Herculaneum was about to be buried by Vesuvius, there there were a few people who stayed by the marina launching as many people they could away on whatever boats were available. They were even trying to repair one broken boat to get it out there and to get some of these women and children who were huddling under the arches of the marina and just get another boat away before it got any worse. And uh, then the surge cloud came, and that's exactly how 
everyone was preserved in their last fraction of a second of life. Wow. It is it is incredible. I, I just noticed we're, we're all, almost out of time here. Um, I thank you so much for for thank taking you. the time out of your schedule. Oh, listen, I, I could talk to you forever. Um, but 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 we will we will um, we have a date in April uh, to go into the Titanic right. and and really and we'll have much dig more deep. information about the Titanic then too. Yeah, that'll be very exciting. And and I still think you're going to write a book on on nine eleven as well. Yeah, well, so. actually, that novel I mentioned it touches very much on nine eleven and. Uh, you know, archaeological, well, you know, basically, I mean, I lost a family member in there, too, among other people. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I realized I knew everything that happened in her office at that moment. And uh, and plus, I've survived a couple of plane crashes myself. And around a year ago, Jim Cameron said, You've never written about some of these really painful things. You've got to put it in. And I was thinking of writing this novel, and he said, you put that in that novel. Put all of it in there. And uh, I've been doing it. So, But wow. it would have never been written if, if he hadn't said do that. But, yeah, 9-11 is a very central part of this novel. Terrific. I'm looking forward to it, but I want to thank you so much for for taking your time out of your busy, busy schedule to uh, share your stuff with me, and um, I look forward to speaking with you again in April for sure uh, on the Titanic. Okay, thank you. See you again. My See you later. Take care now. Yeah, right <laughs> bye on. now. Bye. And thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, do, do tune in tomorrow night. We have a fascinating show with Mark Eddy, and uh, look forward to seeing you all back here again soon. Uh, check out YouTube. This will be up on YouTube later today. If you like what you hear um, and you've been inspired slightly by it, please subscribe to the channel. That's how we know you're listening. Take care now, everybody, and have a great one. Bye-bye.